Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. There was an interesting thing that happened in the church at Thessalonica, and that is Paul had written to them a letter. This would be the first uh, letter to uh, the first Thessalonians. In that fifth chapter, Paul writes to them and he, he tells them about that great day of the Lord that is coming. But he didn't say a lot about it. He just referred to them. Anybody in that day that would have had any experience in Judaism, uh, any familiarity with the Old Testament, would already be familiar with the concept of the the day of the Lord days, because that was a common theme in the Old Testament as well. The, the Jews and their religion understood the concept of God is going to bring this all to an end one of these days. Very common in their, in their doctrine, in their religion, in their understanding of God. And now that's also very common for us as modern day Christians to understand that what's going to happen to this world? One of these days... God's going to bring this all to an end. The insanity that we are experiencing in our life today is not permanent. It's temporary. God is going to change things one of these days. This is going to be a great surprise for some people who don't believe in that. But it's not up to a majority vote. It is the Word of God. It is the truth. And the Thessalonians... After Paul had talked to them about the day of the Lord and a few things that was going to happen, but did not give any time specifics, he just kind of left it at that. In the church, there began to occur this, this rumor that the day of the Lord had already started, simply because they were going through some trouble, some trials, a little tribulation. Probably most of it, which was just common for anybody who was going to live for Jesus. What they experienced was not that different from what we may experience in living for God or just being in a world where things seem to be crazy around you. But they read the first letter. They know he alluded to the day of the Lord. They looked at the circumstances surrounding them and other, a couple of other contributing factors as well. One of them being that some people took the lead in reading Paul's letter and twisting it to mean that he's telling us we're in the day of the Lord. Secondly, there were people who were in the church bringing forth prophecies saying, in essence, thus saith the Lord. And that great day of the Lord is upon us. The day of the Lord, that's a very specific phrase. The day of the Lord, they were saying by Uh, prophetic utterance, the day of the Lord is upon us. Now, for some people, all you have to do is have someone who speaks and says, thus saith the Lord, and they just let down their guard. 
if somebody said, thus saith the Lord, it must be real. But you have to have a discerning of spirits. You can't just put your brain in park and let everybody say, thus saith the Lord, and then say anything they want to say. Does it make sense? Does it line up with the Word? Is it reasonable? Because believe it or not, there are false prophets. Believe it or not, some people move seemingly motivated by the Holy Spirit, but not always. We do have shenanigans from time to time that occur in the church, much to our dismay and chagrin. We have to be aware enough and discerning enough to be able to separate those things. And the last thing is that there was possibly, by the, by the wording of this, scholars believe that there may have even been other letters sent to the Thessalonian church and forged as though they were from Paul and telling them that you are now in the day of the Lord. So with these combination of things happening in the Thessalonian church, the rumor began to spread and they said, this is it. We have entered the day of the Lord. It has snuck upon us. And lo and behold, we're in the middle of this great tribulation. So Paul wrote in the second letter to the Thessalonians, and the second chapter is where we pick this up. He says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, do not become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us. That's where I get all of these things I shared with you. Whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Many passages in the Bible describe the last days or the day of the Lord as being harsh times. Jesus warned that there would be great deceptions and wars and international strife. Do you see any of that today? Of course you do. Paul warned us that the end times would be, and he used the word perilous. We are living in perilous times, and more perilous times are yet to come. Paul said it would be a time that would be marked by false teachers and false doctrines ushering in an age of moral decline. Peter said in the last days there would be scoffers who would not believe that Jesus was coming back and they would follow after their own desires. He said they would foolishly deny the second coming and he said, nevertheless, it will come like a thief in the night. Now Peter used that phrase and Paul used that phrase that it would come like a thief in the night. But Paul said, you are children of the day and not of the night that that should overtake you. You're children of light and children of the day. And the reason he said that is because if it comes like a thief in the night and you're people of darkness, those are the ones who are going to be surprised by this and are going to be taken off guard and, and probably uh, uh, come to ruin. I suppose, because they just don't believe any of this. They don't prepare for it. But Paul said, you're children of the day, you're children of the light. Therefore, for you, 
it's not going to have the effect, the damaging, drastic, dramatic effect of a thief coming in the night. It just won't impact you that way. So Paul takes his second letter to just correct some of these misunderstandings about the day of the Lord having gained uh, that this doctrine, gained this foothold in the church. Paul tells them when he writes them in this second letter, don't panic. Don't be alarmed. There's no reason to be. And he gave them two reasons not to be alarmed by believing that somehow they were in that day of the Lord. Now, let me just quickly tell you what the day of the Lord means. It is a phrase that refers to that time of God bringing that final judgment to this world. You can read in the book of Revelation about tribulation times. And that's probably a word we've heard a lot of in, in recent years. But when you get into that great tribulation, when all this judgment is coming upon the earth and God is, is really destroying the kingdom of darkness because he's getting ready to set up his kingdom, that's really what we're talking about, the day of the Lord. It'll be, it'll be some terrible, difficult times, and it is coming. And he says to the church of Thessalonica, don't be shaken. Don't panic. For that day will not come except there's going to be two things happen before that time. As we see that day approaching, as we see the deterioration of this world around us, we see the moral decline that is more than obvious, then the question is, in our day and age, what should we do? And that's the reason I wanted to preach this today, because I want to leave us with some direction. What do we do as individuals? What do we do as a church if we are indeed living in times that begin to resemble what Paul described as the day of the Lord? Now, first of all, in, in order for me to, to share with you what I think we should do, I'm going to say it's nothing wrong. There is nothing wrong with preparing ourselves for something you see coming. So I don't know if I've got anybody here that you are one of these um, uh, people that are, are preparing for the, the end of the world or not. I don't know if you've got a pantry full of food. I don't know if you've got emergency water stored. I don't know if you've got any of these things. I, I want to know if you do. I've got to know what my options are. You don't have to let anybody else know, just me and my wife. There's nothing wrong with making preparation. If we could just take this out of the context of the coming of Jesus and just look at the condition of the world today, and you're smart enough, organized enough, to get prepared ahead of time, I don't have a problem with that. But that's not what this sermon is about. As a matter of fact, I was talking with a minister the other day. He had called me on the phone. He was having a problem in his church. He said there are some people that, that are... Uh, really aggressively, militantly preaching about you've got to be ready for what's coming down the pike and uh, how, to, how to survive. It's survival of, of uh, the end times is what it is. And the people in his church ha had, had been to several seminars in, in how to put your supplies together and, and uh, uh, stock your little storage uh, 
containers with flashlights and, and all the necessities and, and batteries. And, and then they were, they were upset because the pastor wasn't getting panicked like they were panicked. And then they had said, if you won't join with us and help prepare people, we're going to hold our own Bible study and teach him how to do this. Now, there's conflict right there. That's not Bible study. And we begin to recognize what the problem was, is we have a message for the last days. And the message for the last days, of course, is that Jesus Christ is Lord. The message for the last days of the the gospel message has nothing to do with how to pack your survival kit. That might be legitimate on one level, but when we take our Bible study time, that is about teaching the Word of God and teaching Jesus and put it on these other things, that's not the good news. That's the bad news. We're to be preaching the good news. We all know what the bad news is. Make preparations what you have to do. The good news is that God's going to win in the end. All we have to do is be on His side. So I, I helped uh, what I could with his situation and, and reminded him of those very things that I shared with you. So preparation's okay. Physical preparation, financial preparation. It's fine. But there's something that is more important than all those, and that's spiritual preparation. My concern as a pastor to my church, are you spiritually ready to go through what can and will occur in the last days if we should be a part of that? And it appears as though we are now becoming a a, a part of those things that are a prelude to everything that's going to happen in the last days. It, It looks like we are on the very edge of that. Are you spiritually ready? That's the question about it, because if you're not you're going to lose heart. Jesus said men's hearts failing them for fear, for looking upon those things that are coming upon the earth. We have not seen persecution of Christians as widely as we are seeing it in our day and age. Now, we know that history talks about many things like this. You read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you you don't ever believe that things like that could begin to happen in our day and age. It's always far distant past, but we're seeing a revival of persecution against Christians. And how do you feel about that? Well, it's not a comfortable thought. But there, there, there are some biblical things that we, we have to be able to get a hold of. When Jesus said, uh, blessed are you and men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Now, I'm, I've got to have a different attitude. I can be concerned about the persecution is coming, but if you're spiritually prepared for it, you realize Jesus said, if they did this to me, they'll do it to my followers as well. I can't stop that. I may want to stop it. I may, in, in all good sincerity, try to stop the persecution, but I can't panic. That's the first thing that Paul tells the Thessalonians. Don't panic. Don't be shaken. But you have to be spiritually stable to be ready for what is coming. You know, our government may topple. Things look very precarious. Water may become scarce. It is in California. We may have war break out on American soil. There are many things that could realistically happen to us. Are you spiritually prepared? 
I don't want you to wait to use that time as a time to find the Lord, even though that would be better than not. But I want you to be right with the Lord today. So you're ready to go to that time. So your faith is strong enough that you don't have to panic and say, why do we have to suffer like this? But you'll understand that these things do happen to those who follow Jesus. We can't worry. We can't lose hope. No matter how difficult things may get in our future, we have to have faith strong enough to weather any storm that may come because weak people, people weak in the faith, are not going to make it. Are you spiritually ready? Number two, he tells them, don't be deceived. Now, that's a difficult one. Don't be deceived. You see, if, if I can express this like my brain is, is, is understanding this, then I'll be blessed this morning. <laughs> how, how can I get this out? Deception is by its very nature, it's, it's designed... So that it catches you off guard, and, and I hate to use the word to define the word, deception deceives. And Paul says, don't be deceived. Well, that's easy for you to say, deception deceives people. So what can I do? Don't be deceived. It just, deception happens. It's an innocent thing. It's not like I went out today and say, I sure hope I get deceived today. I don't want to be deceived. It's, it's not like my parents in raising me, they could set boundaries for me and tell me certain things you can and cannot do. When school is over, you cannot go to town. That's where troublemakers hang out. You have to come home. I can control that. But if my parents told me when I went as a child, now don't be deceived today because you'll be in trouble when you get home if you get deceived because I was too naive. How do you control that? But Paul tells them, don't. So I had to dig a little deeper. How can I help it? What can I do? But there are certain things we can do. We have an obligation, we have a duty to do these things so that we don't become victims of deception in the last days. This is where we need to really listen this morning. Paul said, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. These are the two things that he said will happen before you really know that you're in the day of the Lord. First of all, he said that day is not going to come until the rebellion occurs. That's in the translation I have. There will be a great falling away that precedes the official time of the day of the Lord. And number two, the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man who is doomed to destruction. Let's just give him an uh, a title, the Antichrist, okay? Quite simply, that's who we're talking about. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And he said, this man that is coming is going to exalt himself over everything that's called God or is worshipped. Set himself up in, in God's temple, proclaim himself to be God. That's yet future for us. And Paul said, so what you're going through, the difficulties you're having, this is not the day of the Lord yet. Two things. The great apostasy. The great falling away. Scholars debate whether this refers to P. 
people who are actual genuine followers of God begin to fall away from the faith or whether it just represents a general trend of the world that was one time sympathetic to godly things and and believers in godly things maybe not maybe not actually saved but but at least acknowledge God and whether that world became so cold that they re- totally rejected God now scholars can debate all day long I don't know which one that is if they don't know I'm honest enough to tell you I don't know but the result is still shocking whether it's just or even a combination of both and we understand that's a distinct possibility people falling away from the faith we we certainly have seen that happen we've seen people that I can tell you today of people I know used to serve God they're not serving God today that's a falling away now the Bible says that's going to happen in great numbers people falling away the great apostasy the great rebellion against God and that word rebellion is a good translation as well which puts us in the mind of maybe it's not just falling away from Christ and that and it will be many uh, that that will happen to but it also includes the general condition of the world rebelling against God and rejecting him as God and rejecting the truth it's th- this is a shocking development that we are still we still know is still ahead of us and is going to happen we see evidences of both of those trends today and and the thing about it is there's great revival south of the equator but there's also great apostasy happening in the United States so one doesn't exclude the other. When somebody says, well, the Bible says there's going to be great apostasy in the last days. But also, Peter said in the last days that uh, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And how, how can there be a great revival in the last days and a, a great apostasy? Because these people are changing places. We're losing some, but we're gaining some from the darkness. Some from the light are dropping out and some from the darkness are coming in. Both can happen simultaneously. And they have been happening simultaneously through the years and will continue to happen. So we're going to see a great apostasy. We're going to see a great rebellion. And we'll also see a great revival. Revival in, in, in south of the equator as uh, thousands and thousands and thousands coming to Jesus Christ. Revival in Muslim countries as they're coming to Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, in the United States of America, on the other side of the globe, at the same time there's revival. There's apostasy happening in the church in our nation today. And I'm not just talking about the nation itself turning its back on God, but I'm talking about churches that are going apostate. Churches that that were supposed to be institutions standing for the Word of God and for the truth, now compromising the truth. Now adopting new laws and new moral codes because the old ones they don't like anymore. Every time I hear about another church that has voted as a movement, as a church, as a denomination, to, to uh, the, one of the hot topics today is the gay marriage, voted to approve that. That's, that's the signs of the apostasy happening in the church today. When I read another account of a church that has decided that they're going to have beer Sunday school, you come and you can drink beer and you can study, study the Bible. You know, there's a mentality in the church that we didn't do those kind of things at one time because we realized that didn't represent the kind of holiness God called us to. But you see churches that are beginning to do this, and it's just apostasy. As people are falling away from God, are falling away from righteousness, falling away from the truth, and discounting Scripture, it's happening before our eyes. What we're reading here 
of Paul saying what happened in the last days or close to the last days, we begin to see these things developing right before us. It should send chills up and down our back. He said those days to the Thessalonians would not come without this apostasy, this rebellion. We'll continue to see that happening in our day and age, and it's going to get worse. Hell's going to continue to taunt the church with compromises, little concessions that hell wants us to make, seemingly logical arguments against the Bible. It's breathtaking for me to watch the church deteriorate. I cringe at the compromises that the church is making. I I shudder when I see trendy young emerging church pastors absolutely mutilate the Word of God. I I get frustrated. It's like I want to do something to change that, but what do you do? Well, they have a huge pulpit, and they begin to preach universalism, that they believe that somehow everybody is going to be saved in the end after all. They're just destroying the integrity of God's Word. What do you do? It's sickening to see this happening. We're seeing the beginnings of the great apostasy that Paul said would precede the day of the Lord. We're just knocking on the door, people. It's that close. What do we do? How do we behave? We have to continue to live a life that is, is, is worthy of our calling into Jesus Christ. We have to continue to focus on what God wants. God wants holiness out of His church. He wants righteousness. If there's one thing I think hell already knows it, so I'm I'm not informing them of anything. There's one thing that makes me want to lay the Bible down and walk out of the pulpit and never come back. It is to see the people in the church that that know better, they've been taught better, who are dabbling in the things of the world and calling it okay, who are living the kind of lives that if Jesus were right there in your midst, he would not approve of what you're doing, and you know it, but you're doing it anyway. When I see this happening, when I see the compromises going on in the church, when I see people doing things that the Word very clearly tells us that is sin, you cannot do this, and they continue to do it anyway, I get discouraged. I think, God, I preach, I study, I work for you, I've dedicated my life to you, but I can't make a difference in people's lives. I can't even get the saints to continue to be saints from day to day. It makes you just want to go and quit. If we don't believe enough in God and His righteousness and His holiness to live it like it has to be lived, we have a dead message to the world. He said the second thing that's going to happen before that official day of the Lord is the revelation of the Antichrist. And let me read again a little bit of this chapter. He says, don't you remember when I was with you? I used to tell you these things. And now you know what is holding him back. Now, here's the interesting part about this chapter is Paul tells the Thessalonians, you know. And so evidently they did. Paul knew. They knew. We don't have a clue. We're reading somebody else's personal mail. And they've got this knowledge amongst them that we're saying, well, why didn't you tell us? He says, you know who's holding back the Antichrist so he may be revealed in the proper time. 
Well, tell us then. You knew, the Thessalonians knew. Who is it? But Paul refers to this hinderer. I'm going to call the hinderer of lawlessness as we put this whole concept together. Who's keeping the Antichrist from being revealed? Some person, some entity that is holding back lawlessness. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. It's all around us. The power of lawlessness is running at full bore. There's no question about that. But there is nevertheless something that has set limits and restraints on just how far this lawlessness lawlessness can go. The lawlessness wants to run rampant. It wants to run unbridled. It wants nothing holding it back. But something is holding it back. Elsewise, you cannot even imagine what kind of world you'd be living in today if we did not have a hinderer of lawlessness that has not yet lifted his hand and say, okay, I'm turning it over to you. Are you glad there's a hinderer of lawlessness? As bad as it is, It would be multiple times worse without the hinderer. I can tell you what the dispensationalists teach. I can can tell you what those who are not dispensationalists teach. It's very common within the dispensationalism that they view this hinderer of lawlessness. Well, there's there's really only, only two real good candidates for this. And that is the church or the Holy Spirit. The dispensationalists believe that the hinderer of lawlessness is the church. That our presence here is what keeps a check on things. And then once the church is gone, we're referring to the rapture of the church, then uh, all wickedness is going to break loose because we don't have the presence of the church here. The, The second school of thought is the Holy Spirit. And then whenever the Holy Spirit is taken out, then... And, of course, uh, that's when lawlessness will run rampant, unbridled. You know, take, take a ballot and vote. I don't care. You want the church, you want the Holy Spirit. One thing about it is I, I don't see evidence of a time when the Holy Spirit is taken from the world. He's everywhere. But, but I can see a time when the Holy Spirit will lift his restraining hand. He doesn't have to be removed. I think the language of being removed, even if this is the Holy Spirit, has nothing more to do with than, than just the fact that the Holy Spirit, who is possibly the withholder, the hinderer of lawlessness, finally says, now I no longer have the hindering effect. I will allow you to do whatever you want to do. So it's not important who it is. What is important is whenever the hinderer quits hindering. That's the important part of this so we don't get bogged down because we want to go on and find out, well, what happens when the hinderer quits hindering? Then the Antichrist is revealed. So you've got the great falling away, and you've got the revelation of the Antichrist, but you don't have the revelation of the Antichrist until you've got the hinderer who finally lifts his hand and says, now I give it all to you. And then, as I I read in verse 9 and verse 11, I'll skip verse 10, you'll notice a repetition of something that maybe you've never seen before. He will use all sorts of displays of power, this is referring to the Antichrist, through signs and wonders that serve the lie. 
not a lie. There's something very specific that Paul, under the anointing and unction of the Holy Spirit, pointed out the lie. He's going to do this because it serves the purpose of the lie. Go to the 11th verse. For this reason, God sends a powerful delusion so that they will believe, not a lie, the lie. There is something that is so devious, so deceptive. It defines lies. It is the granddaddy of all lies. It is the one that we point and say, that's not just a lie. That is the lie of all lies. And that's what Paul is pointing to is this great deception, the big granddaddy of all lies. When the Antichrist comes and presents himself to be important, putting himself in the place of God, rejecting the notion and the teaching of God and saying, furthermore, I am God. Whenever he does signs and miracles to convince people of how powerful he is, that, my friend, is the consummate lie. And people will believe it. Isn't it strange that we're preaching the truth now and we can't get people to believe it? But Antichrist will come with the biggest lie of all and people will flock to him. You know why? Because God will allow them what they have been desiring. You have the spirit of Antichrist that is working, the spirit of lawlessness, and then you have the appearance of the lawless one. The important part about this is there is a movement first. And after the movement is started, there is a person who comes and goes to the head of the movement. The movement comes first, the person comes second. He doesn't come. Antichrist doesn't come to start a movement. He comes to capitalize on the movement that is already afoot. The spirit of lawlessness is already at work among us. The movement is going. He comes along and just cooperates and becomes the leader of a movement that men started. So what is that? That means that that which they longed for, they prayed for in their own hedonistic way, they desired with all of their heart to be rid of God, to be rid of the, of the truth that was inconvenient for them, to be able to do anything they want to do without anybody telling them they can't do it, to pass every kind of a law protecting every kind of perversion you can possibly think of. That's what they wanted. They started the movement. Then one day, an individual rises up that just fits perfectly into their movement, and they make him their grand leader. The movement, then the man. So he's going to come and take the leadership over this. Christianity is founded on truth. We can't twist the truth and Christianity survive. Truth is vital to us. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. It is founded on absolute truth. Not relative truth. Absolute truth. And it's vitally important for us to know what truth is and to cling to truth and to promote truth and to protect truth. That's another one of the things we can do in the last days. You must know truth when you see it. And you must know a lie when you see it. And you must be a defender of the truth. That's a part of our duty as Christians in the last days. The third thing he tells them is stand firm. Don't panic. Don't be deceived. Stand firm. 
hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you. Now, in context, Paul is saying these are the apostolic teachings. Hold fast to these things. They are good. They will carry you all the way home. Don't be deceived. Hold on to the teachings, the good teachings. That is for us today as well as we come all the more closer to that great and notable day of the Lord. We need to hold to the teachings of truth. Paul commands the Thessalonians, don't be deceived. It is absolutely vital that we do those things to av- that, that, that help us to avoid being deceived. We can't be very good merchants of truth. We can't be protectors of truth. We can't be guardians of truth if we don't know the difference between truth and a scam. You can't do your job. But hell doesn't make it easy. Even Satan appears as an angel of light. So you see, he's, nothing is beneath him to try and pull one over on us. We need discernment today, people. We talk about the gifts of the Spirit, and people can uh, reference all nine gifts of the Spirit. And, and we have a, a lot in Pentecost. We have a lot of emphasis on a couple of gifts of the Spirit and not so much on some of the others. But you, given a choice in the last days, do I want to be able to speak in tongues or do I want to be able to discern? I can tell you right now as a pastor, I've seen churches that preferred to speak in tongues as to discern. In the last days, it is highly important that we discern. I'm going to give you two examples, contemporary examples of how we need discernment and how things are coming down the road that people are buying into, and they're panicking. They're doing what the Thessalonians did. And please forgive me if I offend you. I'm not... Intending to offend, I'm intending as a pastor to sharpen your mind. The first one right now, one of the most popular topics making the rounds in Christianity is what's called the blood moon theory. Many of you have heard of that. If you haven't, bless you. That's okay. There's a television preacher who is ambitiously promoting the blood moon theory. He wrote a book about it. He made a movie about it. But he wasn't the first one to present this theory. It came from Mark Blitz who in 2008 proclaimed it was the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. It would culminate this year, 2015, with the second coming of Christ. And these blood moons would occur and have been for the past two years in 2014, in April and October of 2014, in April and September of this year, the, uh, the, the uh, eclipse, the, the, what they call the blood moon, the, the tetrad. And because they have done some slick work in trying to present this, they, they've used a lot of Bible passages completely out of context to draw this all together. Even going back to the book of Genesis where it says that God made the, uh, the, the sun and the moon and the stars uh, for signs. And really it was, it was signs of feasts. That is, I, I'm not making this up, people. I know Hebrew scholars. I know Old Testament scholars. I, I wrote them. I asked them, what does it say? And I got an agreement. It's not talking about signs of the last days. It made it that they would use these moons and these stars and these as, as times of regular feasts that they would establish. And they did. But to take that totally out of context 
and bring it into this century and say because we've had the occurrence of these eclipses in twice in 2014, twice in 2015. I'm going over this very quickly. I hope I don't confuse you more than you already are. But these are rare occurrences. And in, in the past uh, few hundred years, the times that this has happened, the people who are promoting this say that every time this has happened, something significant has happened to Israel. Now, here's how, here, here's how silly it is, people. I do the study, and I, and I chew it up, and all you have to do is like a little bird is digest it. Here's the problem. is uh, They point to the, the tetrad the, that happened in, in the uh, late 1400s, and what significantly happened for the Jews related to this blood bill? Well, they couldn't think of anything except Columbus discovered America. So talk about a stretch. Columbus discovered America, and America became a great home nation for the Jews. Therefore, the, the significance of that for the Jews was that America was discovered. And by this time, what little bit of hair I got left, I'm ready to snatch out. This is goofy, people. This is silly. This is stretching it beyond any, any reasonable interpretation of Scripture whatsoever. But... People are getting excited about this. And even Blitz in 2008 said, now, by his prophecy, we are in the last year of the seven years, and Jesus is coming this year. I hope that he does. But whenever 2015 passes and it didn't happen, Blitz is out the door, just like all the other crazy prophets that try to invent stuff out of Scripture to make a name for themselves or to sell books or whatever they are doing that is wasting our time. It just doesn't work, and I could spend an enormous amount of time explaining to you why this doesn't work, but I'm telling you, we need discernment because we don't need to get caught up in all of these hype things that are getting our mind off of what we really need to be thinking about is I don't care about eclipses. I don't care about blood moons. I don't care about trying to twist and, and, and distort Scripture to, to, to make a name for myself. What I care about is we still have a message. Jesus is coming soon. Are you ready for him? Now the second one, hold on to your seat has to do with a recent book written by Rabbi Jonathan Kahn called The Harbinger. He got a big boost from Glenn Beck, those of you who are aware of who he is. And just to keep it as simple as I can possibly keep it, he went back and read the uh, ninth chapter of Isaiah, and he saw the conditions that were there for Isaiah, uh, for, for, for Israel uh, to be judged as Isaiah recorded this. And he identified nine characteristics uh, there in that ninth chapter of Isaiah. And then he began to look at the United States and said that all nine characteristics of the fall of Israel are happening in the United States. And it, it all centers around the 2001 uh, attack on, on our soil. So therefore, he is inserting the United States into the ninth chapter of Isaiah. I can promise you people, Isaiah was not talking about the United States of America. I can promise you that. There is not a serious theologian, Old Testament theologian, who will ad agree that the United States is written into the Old Testament prophecies. Those were prophecies that were concerned with Israel, and even whenever it was prophesying about Jesus was coming, uh, what could be more pertinent to Israel than the coming of the Messiah? But to get over here in the United States and try and make an application here just defies logic. It just fries my brain. We need discernment.
And can I go back to the very first thing that Paul told the Thessalonians? Quit panicking. Don't let anybody deceive you. And stand firm. That's what we can do. We need discernment. Like Paul told the Thessalonians, don't be quickly shaken. You've got to get a hold of yourself. You've got to use some wisdom here. You have to have some discernment. He said, stand fast. Hold fast. Hold to the apostolic things you've been taught. Don't allow yourself to get caught up in the hype. It does not enhance your message. Especially whenever you hype it up and nothing happens. And then the world wonders what kind of a latter-day kook you are. You know, you'll be safe in just preaching. Jesus is coming soon. You're so safe. It's going to happen. Why imperil your message by getting caught up in these things? We can't stand firm if we're carried away by every trendy thing that comes along. If we join every parade that carries a Christian banner, we can't stand firm. We can stand firm by trying the spirits, by testing every doctrine, by being very slow and cautious when we see these new truths come rolling out, by being grounded in the Word instead of being mesmerized by slick television evangelists. The end is not yet, but the end is very near. What we can do is pray. What we can do is evangelize because that's what he told us to do. What we can do is occupy till he comes. We have to do that. What we can do is defend truth. What we can do is stand up for righteousness in a day when people hate righteousness. Even Christians are beginning to despise righteousness and they want to look like the world and smell like the world and act like the world. We can stand up for righteousness. We can let our lights shine in a world that is being plunged into unprecedented darkness. We can be salt in a world that has no flavor without us. That's what we can do in the last days. We can stand firm when others falter. But what we cannot do is panic. What we cannot do is give up. What we cannot do is despair. What we cannot do is foolishly buy into deceptions that mar our credibility. Be strong. Be wise as serpents. And be ready. Because I said the one thing you must do is be spiritually ready. Because Jesus is coming soon. And whenever John saw the great revelation, the vision of things to come, And Jesus told John at the end, Behold, I come quickly. And John saw all those things and what it would mean to draw close to the end, to the coming of Jesus. And regardless of all of those trials and tribulation and the wrath and the judgment and everything else, John wrote in response to Jesus saying, Behold, I come quickly. And John said, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And I don't think it's wrong to pray for the coming of the Lord. But I think it's wrong not to be ready for it. Worship team, would you come?